All right. Hey, guys. Hey, both of you. Hello. Welcome to MANA. Um, and hopefully there's going to be people tuning in uh, online later. Um, but we've got a fairly large section of First Kings to get through. I'm going to try and get us starting at chapter 12. I'm going to try and get us all the way through 16 to keep us on track with our uh, reading plan. So let's get into it. Um, can one of y'all pray before we start? Great. Thank you, Matt. Uh, Father, I just pray that um, uh, that your spirit would uh, just reveal new things to us in your word, uh, that we would be encouraged and equipped, and that we would um, just uh, have a better relationship with you out of this time, uh, that you would be sanctifying us. Um, and I just pray for Leith, that as he opens your word, that you would just uh, guide his words. Uh, I just pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. Mm-hmm. All right, so um, to sort of recap last week, which I guess the recap is just for one of you. Um, <laughs> yeah. Basically what happened, uh, the most pertinent thing that happened leading up to this chapter is uh, Solomon has sort of, not sort of, he has erected uh, statues to, yes, he's dead, but before he died, he erected statues um, to idols that were not Yahweh, uh, which is really bad, and so he dies, and then his son is set to take over, his son Rehoboam, um, but the Lord promises the kingship of Israel to Jeroboam, who was a guy who was kind of, uh, he's a younger guy, and he was um, not fond of Solomon's rule, and uh, so he promises the ten, ten of the tribes of Israel to Jeroboam, but he leaves the remaining two tribes in Judah to Rehoboam to fulfill his promise to David that the, um, was it the scepter will never leave his family's hand, something along those lines. So that's basically where we are with the political landscape of Israel. Um, so we've got Israel, the ten tribes being controlled by Jeroboam, and two tribes in Judah controlled by uh, Rehoboam, um, and basically, <clears throat> I kind of wanted to start and end today with just the idea of what exactly is a king, what is the role of a king, and not necessarily like what should a king be, because Jay did a pretty good job last week explaining that, going back to Deuteronomy, where the Lord lays out exactly what kings are supposed to do and also not do, that Solomon failed in um, following, but basically, I mean, this whole this book is called Kings, so the, the nature of this role is really important, um, and I kind of wanted to look back at both Solomon and David and ask, are these guys bad kings? Um, because while they certainly had some really good things come out of their reign over Israel, um, David had the unforgettable experience with Uriah and Bathsheba, which is kind of the one stain on his whole rule for the rest of the rest of biblical history. Um, and Solomon, who was is considered the wise king, he wrote the Proverbs, or at least collected and assembled the Proverbs. He also wrote Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon, um, which are all books. They're considered biblical canon. They're inspired by God. Um, he, in the end, near the end of his life, still erected 
these idols that were detracting people from worshiping God, and like that's a bad thing. Um, so looking back on the way that these kings were handled, um, what can we really think about that going in? Because there's even more, pretty much the entirety of the section that we're about to read has to do with the kings that are over Israel and Judah and what exactly they do. Um, so just thinking about what is a king in this context? Um, the people originally wanted a king because they wanted somebody political who could rule over them, but uh, what they didn't realize was that they're basically spitting in God's face, saying, we don't think that you are enough to rule over us. We want a human to follow. And the biggest thing that's led to difficulties with kings is the fact that they're just humans. It started with Saul. Uh, he was not fit to be king. Physically, he seemed that way. But when it actually came to having to do things and having to be above his own humanity, he wasn't able to do it. And any time he was able to do it is when God put his spirit inside of Saul and helped him do things. Um, but for the most part, Saul couldn't do it on his own. Um, and that's kind of the same with David and Solomon. David wrote the Psalms inspired by the Lord's spirit. And, uh, and any military victories he had were when he pressed into the Lord and God helped him with those victories. Um, and the same with Solomon. And His wisdom is something he specifically prayed for. And that's what God gave him, and that's why we call him the wise king, because he had God-given wisdom. It's something he prayed for, it's something God gave him, but in other areas he totally screwed up and was actually very unwise. Um, so I think the biggest takeaway from these two guys is that God still uses these people despite their flaws. Um, and it's sort of this long process of him redeeming this role that the people asked for. The people asked for a king, and God is giving them kings, and they're acting as a king would act. They're acting as a king uh, would act based on what God told them. He said kings are going to be um, oppressive, they're going to be domineering, and you, know, it's, you, you don't know exactly what you're asking for by saying that you want political rule to be taken away from me and given to a man. Um, but they still asked, they still wanted it, and now... There's going to be even more consequences of that original request as we go in. Um, so, chapter 12 takes up with uh, Rehoboam. So we haven't really seen anything of Rehoboam yet. We just know that he is a son of Solomon, probably one of the many sons. Um, Solomon had quite a few, as you can imagine. He had 700 wives, and uh, if he had a son with even half of them, statistically speaking, if he had one child with all of them, half of them would be boys, roughly. Um, so that's like hundreds of sons. And Rehoboam, it's not really explained why he, over all the others, was chosen to be the next king of Israel. Perhaps he was the oldest. Um, but uh, that's the way he got this kingship. Um, and pretty much from the get-go, he's not doing things very well. So let's jump in and see, uh, see what happens. Chapter 12. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. And as soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, for he was still in Egypt, where he had fled from King Solomon, then Jeroboam returned from Egypt. And they sent and called him, and Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. 
He said to them, or uh, Rehoboam said to them, Go away for three days, then come again to me. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men, who had stood before Solomon his father while he was yet alive, saying, How do you advise me to answer this people? And they said to him, If you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. And I think it's pretty interesting that uh, the counsel he gets from the older men, the wiser men, is very reminiscent of kind of the way that Jesus handled everything. Yes, you are their king, but if you serve them, then they will in turn serve you. Um, But he doesn't take this advice. Verse 8, But he abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him and took counsel with the young men who, who had grown up with him and stood before him. And he said to them, What do you advise that we answer this people who have said to me, Lighten the yoke that your father put on us? And the young men who had grown up with him said to him, Thus shall you speak to this people who said to you, Your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus shall you say to them, My little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam on the third day, as the king said, Come to me again the third day. And the king answered the people harshly, and forsaking the counsel that the old men had given him, he spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord, that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. So there's a couple different things in this section I want to look at. Um, I wanted to make sure we read through it just so we sort of see how everything plays out and the fact that he actually does take the advice of his friends over the advice of the older, wiser people. Um, so first off, verse 8, uh, the fact that he would even get a second opinion from people um, that it says, it repeats twice that these are young men who had grown up with him. Um, And I think that's an important thing to notice because the older men are obviously going to have more experience in life. They already saw how his father reigned through Israel, um, and they can give him a much better type of counsel. Yet he asks people, and it's important to see that they had grown up with him, which means they had a lot of the same experiences that he had. They probably were friends when they were young and growing up. He's asking people who are pretty much going to give him the same answer he would have come up with on his own. He wants people who aren't going to challenge him, and he just wants people who are like him to say what he already wants them to say, whereas the older men are telling him things to do things and respond in a way that he doesn't want to. They're asking him to respond in a way that's actually more kingly, more holy, more merciful, and uh, he doesn't want to have to do that. So instead of saying, well, I'm just going to do it this way, he says, I'll ask my friends and then maybe he can take some of the blame off of himself, saying, well, they told me, they gave me counsel, and I received counsel, so I went and did it. But he asked, he, he asked people who gave him the same counsel he would have given himself, so it's really no counsel at all. Um, another thing to point out, and this is, uh, I hope it's not too much of a stretch, but I mean, I read this in a, a scholarly book, so I don't think it is. Um, this line in verse 10 where they, rec- they tell him to say, my little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. There's a bit of a, um, 
This is sort of a nuanced translation. So literally, this word that's translated finger in Hebrew means thing. So, he, so it literally translates, my little thing is thicker than my father's thighs. And it's only out of context and just, it's commonly translated as finger. But you could just as easily translate it as something different, something um, without implying too heavily. But okay, basically, uh, one of a very easy way to read this is that he's sort of saying that his own endowment privately, his own endow- private endowment is bigger than his father's. They're saying, you should puff yourself up in front of these guys and say, no, I am better than my father in lots of ways, including this really inappropriate way. Um, and uh, and sort of just like, and not to mention all the facts, all the things like, I'm going to add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. Just make it that much worse by saying, uh, do you think I'm anything like my father? Here's what I have to say about me compared to my father. Um, and so I didn't say that. A scholar said it. I'm just repeating what he said. Um, but that is pretty interesting. Um, and it kind of fits a little bit better in this situation, too. He's asking these young men who are probably really crass and uh, would likely suggest something like this. And it's not really any different from something that people would say today. Um, and the last thing I want to point out in the section we just read is in verse 15. Um, it says, So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word. And when I first read this, my first reaction was, what does that mean? The Lord brought about uh, this entire situation. He brought the fact that Rehoboam is not going to listen to wise counsel and is actually going to listen to his friends. That doesn't make any sense because there's no good that can come out of this. Um, And I think that what this does is it's really there to challenge our challenge our scope of what of how powerful God is um, and sort of bring about the sense that he really is this inconceivable that this is something that these people totally did on their own. They used their free will to say, okay, Rehoboam's going to go and seek counsel from his friends instead of from these older guys and these people are going to come to him and he's going to react harshly to them. And yet, it says that God is the one who was orchestrating all of this, except that these people were doing these things independently. Um, So I think it breaks two different misconceptions that we have. The misconception that God is a kid with a Lego set, and he's just moving people around, putting them where they're supposed to go, and saying, now you said this, and you said this, and then I built this thing. Um, Because that's too simple. And the way that we experience life, and in so many areas in the Bible that explain the depths of our free will. We know that not to be true. We know that we have 100% agency for our own actions, and yet God created everything, and nothing happens outside of his will. How do, And it's sort of, I think this section brings about that same tension, that this thing that is not good is still bringing out God's will, and it's kind of one of those inconceivable traits of him that something can be seemingly against his will and yet still be fulfilling his will regardless of that fact. And it's almost as though our free will is still at the mercy of what God is going to do on the grander plane of eternity. 
um, which is totally mind-blowing, and it's something that starts to hurt your brain a little bit if you dwell on it for too long. Um, but there's a couple different sections that talk about this, that talk about things uh, that are brought about by the Lord, things that you can say God is in some sense responsible for, and yet also the people doing it are the ones responsible. And if it's a bad thing, they are also the ones culpable, they're the ones that are held responsible for the negative outcomes of it. Um, so I just wanted to point that out because that line should not go unnoticed. Um, just really trying to wrap your head around how grand God is and all these bad things happening are actually still leading up to uh, something that he has always had planned. Um, so hopefully that wasn't too awful confusing. Um, so we'll continue in verse 16. And when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Look, look now to your own house, David. And this, this verse that's quoted right here should seem fairly familiar. It's quoted from uh, 2 Samuel 20, this guy, that guy Sheba, who was trying to lead a revolt against David. Um, and so the fact that people are repeating this now against the current king is not good because Sheba was a traitor um, and he was, he was a traitor really to all of Israel because he was trying to overthrow the king and as you remember he was not successful in the slightest so the fact that people are looking to him for inspiration right now is really bad they're repeating his words knowing full well how his story ended um, so things are not good in Israel um, so Israel went to their tents, but Rehoboam reigned over the people of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah. Then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was taskmaster over the, la the forced labor, and all Israel stoned him to death with stones. And King Rehoboam hurried to, the mount, to mount his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. And when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. There was none that followed the house of David, but the tribe of Judah only. When Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, he assembled all the house of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 chosen warriors, to fight against the house of Israel, to restore the kingdom to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. But the word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God, Say to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all the house of Judah and Benjamin, and to the rest of the people, Thus says the Lord, you shall not go up or fight against your relatives, the people of Israel. Every man return to his home, for this thing is from me. So they listened to the word of the Lord and went home again, according to the word of the Lord. So this is another area, he says, for this thing is from me. Conceivably, we can see on a human level that, oh, we're trying to restore the kingship of Israel to the house of David which would be by putting it in the hands of Rehoboam, Solomon's son. And yet God comes in and says, no, this is what I want. You are not to do this. We're not to try and take over um, because I have a plan that's going on already. Even though it doesn't make sense to you that we wouldn't, I wouldn't just give the kingdom back, this is how it's going to work. Um, verse 25. And this is basically Jeroboam's kind of response to this whole thing happening. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built Tenuel. 
And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will return back to the house of David. If his people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam the king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam the king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And this is a really, really scary scene. Um, Jeroboam is kind of sensing the people's uh, inclination towards being devoted to Yahweh. And he decides, as king, I'm going to basically restrict them from worshiping Yahweh, and I'm going to build up idols for them that, they, that they're allowed to worship. And uh, he erects them, and this line that he says, you've gone up to Jerusalem long enough, behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Um, it just strikes a really, really creepy tone, and is basically saying, it is now a rule in the land that you can't go here and worship God anymore. You have to worship who I say. Um, and honestly, that sucks and you feel for Israel, but at the same time, Israel goes along with it. And so they are responsible for that, even though Jeroboam is the one who is leading them to do these things. Um, verse 29, And he set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. Then this thing became a sin for the people. Then this thing became a sin, for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. He also went as far... He also made temples on high places and appointed priests from among all the people who were not of the Levites. And now he's changing even more of God's rules. The, Levite, uh, the Levites are the only people who are supposed to act as priests. Now he's just saying, whoever wants to be a priest, because we don't follow Yahweh anymore, I'm making the rules now. Um, and Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th day of the 8th month, like the feast that was in Judah, and he offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places that he had made. He went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the fifteenth day in the eighth month, in the month that he had devised from his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the people of Israel and went up to the altar to make offerings. So now he's taking feasts that were already in place and he's just reappropriating them for his new gods. Um, I guess to sort of keep the same calendar, but totally refocus the item of worship, um, which is terrible. It's really terrible. And uh, the good news is, I guess if you're, it's good, it's sort of good news, it's kind of in a cynical way, but Jeroboam has a lot coming for him, and uh, we'll get to see that pretty soon. Um, starting here in chapter 13. Chapter 13 says, And behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings. And the man cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign that the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down, and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. When the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried against the altar at Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Seize him. And his hand, which he stretched out against him, dried up, so that he could not draw it back to himself. The altar also was torn down, and the ashes poured out from the altar, according to the sign that the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. 
And the king said to the man of God, Entreat now the favor of the Lord your God, and pray for me, that my hand may be restored to me. And the man of God entreated the Lord, and the king's hand was restored to him, and became as it was before. And the king said to the man of God, Come home with me and refresh yourself, and I will give you a reward. And the man of God said to the king, If you give me half your house, I will not go in with you. And I will not eat bread or drink water in this place, for so it was commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, You shall neither eat bread nor drink water, nor return by the way that you came. So he went another way and did not return by the way that he came to Bethel. So this guy came in to the altar, basically saying, you know, God has said that this is really bad and it's going to be destroyed. Um, and he even predicts King Josiah, who doesn't come until a couple hundred years later. Um, and uh, Jeroboam uh, tries to get him trapped, but obviously God protects this man. And uh, one of the big things that God tells him, besides what he's supposed to tell Jeroboam, is you can't eat with him and you can't go back the same way that you came into this town. Um, and so he starts off okay. He, go, he returns a different way home. Um, but then this old prophet uh, hears about this man. And we'll see in verse 11. Um, now an old prophet lived in Bethel, and his sons came and told him all that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. They also told to their father the words that he had spoken to the king. And their father said to them, Which way did he go? And his son showed him the way that the man of God who came from Judah had gone. And he said to his sons, Saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled the donkey for him, and he mounted it. And he went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak. And he said to him, Are you the man of God who came from Judah? And he said, I am. Then he said to him, Come home with me and eat bread. And he said, I may not return with you or go in with you. Neither, I, neither will I eat bread nor drink water with you in this place. For it was said to me by the word of the Lord, you shall neither eat bread nor drink water there, nor return by the way that you came. And he said to him, I also am a prophet as you are. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with you into your house, that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied to him. So he went back with him and ate bread in his house and drank water. As they sat at the table, the word of the Lord came to the prophet who had brought him back. And he cried to the man of God who came from Judah, thus saying, Thus says the Lord, Because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord and have not kept the command that the Lord your God commanded you, but have come back and have eaten bread and drunk water in the place of which he said to you, Eat no bed and drink no water. Your body shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. And after he had eaten bread and drunk, he saddled the donkey for the prophet whom he, whom he had brought back. And as he went away, a lion met him on the road and killed him. And his body was thrown in the road, and the donkey stood beside it. The lion also stood beside the body. And behold, men passed by and saw the body thrown in the road, and the lion standing by the body. And they came and told it in the city where the old prophet lived. And when the prophet who had brought him back from the way, brought him back from the way heard of it, he said, It is the man of God who disobeyed the word of the Lord. Therefore the Lord has given him to the lion, which has torn him and killed him according to the word that the Lord spoke to him. And he said to his son, Saddle the donkey for me. And they saddled it. And he went and found his body thrown in the road, and the donkey and the lion standing beside the body. The lion had not eaten the body or torn the donkey. And the prophet took up the body of the man of God and laid it on the donkey and brought it back to the city to mourn and to bury him. And he laid the body in his own grave, and they mourned over him, saying, Alas, my brother! And after he had buried him, he said to his sons, When I die, bury me in the grave in which the man of God is buried. 
lay my bones beside his bones. For the saying that he called out by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against all the houses of the high places that are in the cities of Samaria shall surely come to pass. After this thing, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way, but made priests for the high places again from among all people. Any who would, he ordained to be priests of the high places. And this thing became sin to the house of Jeroboam, so as to cut it off and to destroy it from the face of the earth. Um, so this whole account, basically, um, of the man of God coming and then disobeying in what might seem like a slight way to what God told him is just pressing in on how sacred God's word is to be for us. And if you... Um, if you're told to do something and you directly don't do it, then... Or, sorry, he's told not to do something and he does it anyways. Um, that That is sin. Um, and uh, in this situation, it's another prophet who comes up to him and basically lies and says, Oh, but I've gotten a word from the Lord as well that contradicts your word, as though that is somehow supposed to override the word that he had originally gotten. Um, and... I think Paul, was it, even talks about this later that, well, maybe it's not Paul. That would be really embarrassing if I said that wrong. Someone in the New Testament mentions that even if an angel of God comes to you and tells you this to do something that's contrary to what I have told you, um, that you're not to believe it. And that's how serious it is here. And it's funny that he even, he even says an angel here. Um, and this guy just needs to know that. He needs... And it's helpful for us to know, too, um, that if we know something to be true through Scripture and someone else comes in and is saying, no, I think Scripture is actually saying this, or it's a cult-type thing where they're like, oh, we've got a new translation, and we've found a new book that says this totally different thing, um, then that's not to be believed. And we know specifically because things like this happen and because we have other passages that attend to the fact that... Uh, was it in Galatians? Okay, so it was Paul. Thank goodness. Um, I just feel really bad personally getting Paul and Jesus confused because they're not the same. Um, but just adding to the Word of God and thinking that you can twist it somehow to make it different originally, um, that is that is exactly what the original sin was all about. Genesis 3 was God gave them a command, a very simple command, and it was that slight it was, first of all, the desire that already existed in them to do what they wanted to do and to exalt themselves to the position of the Lord. Um, but that was what was present and then led to them saying, maybe God didn't say what he actually said. Um, it's the same sin that's still alive in humanity that leads to this section right here. Um, and this guy dies because of it. And... Uh, that's pretty bad, but he was, uh, he was a man of God. He knew the consequences of breaking his word, um, just as much as this prophet who lied to him and now feels the responsibility and the weight of what he said because he says here I, that he, uh, where is it? Um, the Lord has given him to the lion. It was the man of God who disobeyed the word of the Lord, but he also realizes later um, that he was he was the one responsible. His sin also led to.
to that man's sin, and that's why he wants his bones buried with him. Um, but again, all of this took place as fulfillment of God's greater plan that Jeroboam is cut off from Israel. Um, and we'll see even more of that coming in in chapter uh, 14. Um, but before we go on, I just want to reiterate that there's a lot of talk here about a word coming from the Lord. Um, I think it's really cool that we, uh, in the New Testament, we talk about Jesus as the word and how instead of just being a sentence spoken to somebody, he is an actual man, um, whereas uh, you can come to someone with a word from the Lord and then as we see in this situation here, somebody else just makes one up and says, oh, but I have this thing, what about that? Um, by giving us Jesus, he gives us a man who has actions, and that's not up to interpretation. If someone, and they did this all the time, the Pharisees, they would come in and they would say, well, what about this? And they would try to challenge him. But Jesus, being a man, can respond to them. And uh, that's just, I think, so much stronger than having prophets who are, yes, speaking on behalf of the Lord, but they themselves cannot defend God the same way that he himself could. Um, so, so there's that. Um, chapter 14, and this is where it starts getting pretty juicy. I think chapter 14 is probably the juiciest chapter of this whole section. Um, at that time, Abijah, the son of Jeroboam, fell sick. And this, is the, this is kind of the kingdom of Jeroboam slowly falling down, um, like London bridges. And Jeroboam said to his wife, Arise and disguise yourself, that it not be known that you are the wife of Jeroboam, and go to Shiloh. Behold, Ahijah, and this is a confusing section, Abijah and Ahijah are two different people, although an H and a B look very similar on print. So I had to reread this a few times. Um, Abijah is Jeroboam's son, who is sick. Ahijah, and it's probably also not being pronounced correctly, is a prophet of God. Um, so try to keep that in mind um, but Ahijah is mentioned way more so it shouldn't be that confusing um, behold Ahijah the prophet is there who said of me that I should be king over this people and I think that this is a quick little glimpse into exactly what Jeroboam thought about how he got to be king it was actually God who told Ahijah to grant him kingship but um, not Ahijah sorry yeah yeah but Jeroboam doesn't credit this to God whatsoever. He says, oh, let's go to that prophet who told me that I was going to be king. He doesn't say, let's go to the prophet who God told to make me king. So this whole time he's thinking that he's going to be appealing to a man, and that's what leads to sort of the, uh, the confusion and the, the, his plan not going very well because he thinks he's just dealing with a person, not with God himself. Um, verse 3, Take with you ten loaves, some cakes, and a jar of honey, and go to him, and he will tell you what shall happen to the child. Which is interesting, because if they just wanted to know what was going to happen, he would just say, go and ask. But he's bringing all of these things because he's trying to sway the outcome of it, as though the cakes and the honey is going to make him say, oh, the child's going to live, and then it'll happen. Um, which is not how God works. And again, that's just an appeal to a man who has taste buds and might be influenced by this, whereas God doesn't care how many loaves you have to bring him. 
Um, Jeroboam's wife did so. She arose and went to Shiloh and came out of the house of Ahijah and came to the house of Ahijah. Now Ahijah could not see, for his eyes were dim because of his age. So this line's sort of in here. First of all, to show Ahijah's old. But also, she didn't need that extensive a, dis- of a, extensive of a disguise in order to deceive him. He already can't see very well. Um, a wig and maybe like a new perfume might have done it. Um, and the Lord said to Ahijah, Behold, the wife of Jeroboam is coming to inquire of you concerning her son, for he is sick. Thus and thus shall you say to her. But when she came, she pretended to be another woman. But when Ahijah heard the sound of her feet, as she came in at the door, he said, Come in, wife of Jeroboam, which probably took her totally off guard. Why do you pretend to be another? For I am charged with unbearable news for you. Um, And this is like a total record scratch moment for her. She was coming in, pretending to be someone else, probably going to schmooze him a little bit with, Oh, I've brought you these things. By the way, I heard this about the king's son. And immediately she's preparing this, and as she comes up to the door... Ahijah says, I know exactly who you are, and now I've got some really bad stuff to tell you. Um, Go, tell Jeroboam, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because I exalted you from among the people and made you leader over my people Israel and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you, and yet you have not been like my servant David, who kept my commandments and followed me with all his heart, doing only that which is right in my eyes, but you have done evil above all who were before you, and have gone and made for yourselves other gods and metal images, provoking me to anger, uh, and have cast me behind your back. Therefore, behold, I will bring harm upon the house of Jeroboam, and will cut off from Jeroboam every male, both bond and free in Israel, and will burn up the house of Jeroboam, as a man burns up dung until it is all gone. Anyone belonging to Jeroboam who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. And anyone who dies in the open country, the birds of the heaven shall eat. For the Lord has spoken it. And this section is actually even more uh, intense than we originally read it as. Because in the Hebrew, what we translate as every male is literally he who urinates against a wall. Which is obviously talking about men, but um, it's so much more graphic when he says it that way. And the use of, and in saying, uh, comparing the burning up of the house of Jeroboam to the burning up of dung until it is all gone. Like, he didn't have to say it that way. That was just extra emphasis. And at the same time, it also kind of reminds of, like, he wouldn't use the word dung unless he was trying to relate Jeroboam to actual poop. And the same sort of thing with, he wouldn't, he wouldn't, sit, he wouldn't use uh, he who urinates against a wall unless he was trying to sort of insinuate that the effects of Jeroboam's kingship have been similar to kind of the nasty bodily movements that people have. Um, so he's giving the sense that really Jeroboam has totally dirtied up the throne, and he's dirtied up Israel, and that driving his family out of it is actually going to be a cleansing of Israel. Um, so I just thought that was re- really crazy language to use and adds further emphasis, um, and it's something that we don't really uh, we don't really get just reading it in English. But in Hebrew, this would have been incredibly powerful to hear, um, and a little gross. Uh, verse 12 says, Arise, therefore, go to your house. When your feet enter the city, the child shall die. 
just like that. Your son's going to die, which is all she even came to learn. And all Israel shall mourn for him and bury him, for he only of Jeroboam shall come to the grave, because in him there is found something pleasing to the Lord, the God of Israel, in the house of Jeroboam. Moreover, the Lord will raise up for himself a king over Israel, who shall cut off the house of Jeroboam today. And henceforth, the Lord will strike Israel as a reed is shaken in the water, and root up Israel out of this good land that he gave to their fathers, and scatter them beyond the Euphrates, because they have made their Asherim, provoking the Lord to anger. Asherim is idols that they build. They built to the goddess Asherah, which is one of the pagan goddesses that they've been worshiping. Um, and he will give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he sinned to make Israel to sin. And I'm just going to read the first line and then talk about this a little bit of the next verse. Then Jeroboam's wife arose and departed and came to Terza. But if you think about it, this has got to be such a weird scene for her. So she's coming in in disguise, and immediately she's found out by Ahijah, which is embarrassing. And then on top of that, he says, By the way, your husband, who is also the king of Israel, has done so poorly that we're going to cut off his entire family um, because this is for the good of Israel, that your family is completely destroyed from, uh, or completely taken away from the kingship. Also, your son is going to die. Also, Israel is going to be punished for your husband's sin that led them to sin. Also, you now need to go tell your husband all of this. Um, I just find that incredibly awkward for her. And uh, imagining her, it says, wife arose and departed. That's just such an understatement. She's probably, um, I don't know what she's feeling right there, but it's probably terrible. And then Jeroboam has to hear this all from her, um, which is even worse. And she has, she has came to the threshold of the house, the and as she came to the threshold of the house, sorry, the child died. And all Israel buried him and mourned for him, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Ahijah the prophet. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam how he warred and how he reigned, behold, they are written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Israel. And the time that Jeroboam reigned was twenty-two years, and he slept with his fathers, and Nadab his son reigned in his place. So a couple things about this last section also. Um, this book that they bring up, the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel, this is not talking about First and Second Chronicles. Um, this is actually talking about a book that, and I'm, I bring it up because it's brought up you're going you're gonna to hear this line at least five more times uh, before we're done reading today. They keep talking about, and if you want to know more about this king, read this book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. We've never found this book, unfortunately. Um, and honestly, since it hasn't been preserved, you can kind of go with the assumption that there's not a lot in it that we necessarily need to glean. There's probably a lot of political stuff. They took this land. They fought these people. Maybe not even that significant. Um, who knows what was in it, but uh, since it wasn't included in here, since they had to refer you to basically what is an appendix of information, um, I'm led to believe that that means that it just wasn't significant enough to be held in the canon of Scripture. Maybe we'll find it someday, um, but these were preserved for a very particular reason, and uh, Considering how dry some of these sections are that list like genealogies and stuff like that, I'm kind of glad that we don't have all this extra stuff about these kings that we cycle through really quickly. Um, 
So that's just a note, that this book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel is unfortunately currently lost to history. Um, and the other thing is another verse, another line that gets repeated a lot is, when a king dies, they'll say he slept with his fathers. That's basically a euphemism for the fact that he was buried with his fathers, which is the way that they buried most kings back then. Um, so that's what they mean when they say he slept with his fathers. His body was buried with his fathers, and now his son has taken over. Um, so Nadab is taking over as king of Israel. However, for the rest of the chapter, we revert back to Rehoboam and see what's been going on in Judah this whole time. Uh, spoiler alert, it's been not been good. Verse 21. Now Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah. Rehoboam was 41 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city that the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. His mother's name was Nama the Ammonite, and Judah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they provoked him to jealousy with their sins that they committed more than all that their fathers had done. This is another thing that's repeated a lot too. More than either their fathers or more than those before them had done. Really showing that things are just continuing to get worse. Um, and also another important thing is it's not even saying Rehoboam was starting all these practices that led them down this way. Judah was doing this all on their own. They were uh, turning their backs from the Lord, doing what was evil inside of him. Just on their own sinfulness. Um, uh, where are we? Verse 23. For they also built for themselves high places and pillars and asherim on every high hill and under every green tree. And there were also male cult prostitutes in the land. They did according to all the abominations of the nations that the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. So they took up all the practices of the people that they had defeated, of the idolatry that the Lord had used the armies of Israel to wipe out, now they've just picked it up again. Um, 25. In the fifth year of King Rehoboam, Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. Um, he took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He took away everything. He also took away the shields of gold that Solomon had made, and King Rehoboam made in their place shields of bronze and committed them to the hands of the officers of the guard who kept the door of the king's house. And as often as the king went into the house of the Lord, the guard carried them and brought them back to the guard room. Now the rest of the acts of Rehoboam and all that he did, are they not written in the books of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam continually. And Rehoboam slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. His mother's name was Nama the Ammonite, and Abijam his son reigned in his place. Uh, and there's an interesting historical note that I've read concerning this very last section talking about um, Shishak, king of Egypt, who took away the treasures of Israel. So um, the first possibility with this section is just that Judah was so far from Yahweh and they weren't seeking his face, his protection, anything like that, that taking this gold from them, if you have any sort of sizable army, was like taking candy from a baby, taking gold from Judah. Um, so that's one possibility. And there's another possibility that I've read about that is that this king, Shishak, is um, the same as a king recorded in extra-biblical history as whose name was Sheshonk, who would have been king of Egypt around the same time, or he was a pharaoh named Sheshonk, who um, 
It's recorded that he passed through Judah on his way to have battles in northern Israel. And basically, this whole action of him taking their gold would actually have been uh, Rehoboam paying him off so that he wouldn't battle Judah on his way through. Basically saying, I'll give you this gold and you can pass through, just don't battle us while you pass through. Um, so that is, that's kind of a historical assumption based on the lining up of different things and the years and all that. But either way, neither of these are good. The second one is probably a little bit worse, but in either situation, Judah has totally turned from the Lord, and they are worshiping idols, and they have male prostitutes coming around, and uh, based on sort of the evidence around this time, there's a lot of insinuation that this whole male prostitute practice is a lot related to them worshiping certain gods who they would basically have uh, intercourse in the temples as a way of like appealing to the gods to give them rain, to give them whatever. Um, and uh, all of it was just really bad. All of it was not good stuff. And um, it's just kind of, again, talking about the worsening of everything. Um, but fortunately, in the next chapter, we get a king that's actually decent. Um, and so... That's a good thing about this. Um, chapter 15. Now in the 18th year of King Jeroboam, so this is reverting back to what's going on in Israel. Um, actually, no, this is kind of like, this is still happening in Judah. In the 18th year of King Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, Abijam began to reign over Judah. He reigned for three years in Jerusalem, which is an embarrassingly short amount of time for a king. His mother's name was Makkah, the daughter of Abishalom, and he walked in all the sins that his father did before him, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father. Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem, setting up his son after him, and establishing Jerusalem, because David did what was, in right, what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him in all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. Um, Sorry, I just lost my place. Right, it's tight. Verse 6. Now there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all the, days of his, all the days of his life. The rest of the acts of Abijam and all that he did, are they not written in the, books, in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And there was war between Abijam and Jeroboam. And Abijam slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David. And Asa his son reigned in his place. Um, so a quick thing about this section is it's interesting that... Uh, it mentions the Lord giving a lamp in Jerusalem, basically saying that there will still be part of David's family in Jerusalem for David's sake. And it says it's also because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Um, and that's interesting because if we are looking at this whole thing sort of on the grand narrative scale, if David being a righteous king can help keep the promises that the Lord gave him, and also um, can basically hold back the wrath of God. Because as you can see, he hasn't totally destroyed Judah, even though they've almost completely fallen away from him. Um, and it was David's righteousness that's helping sustain them. Then how much more is Jesus' righteousness, and not only that, but his work, his sacrifice, 
um, going to be used to protect us. Um, and I think it's just a cool little picture that uh, God is in sort of his constancy. This is just another element of his character in that um, the role of a king is still very important to him. And since David was such a good king, he's now helped at least for a little bit in, um, in maintaining the city of Jerusalem. And if Jesus was any sort of a king as we know him to be, then uh, his sacrifice and his kingship over us is going to be even that much more powerful. Um, so that's cool. And in verse 9, finally some good news with King Asa. In the 20th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Asa began to reign over Judah, and he reigned, his, yeah, he reigned 41 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Mekah, the daughter of Abishalom, and Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and David, as David his father had done. He put away the male cult prostitutes out of the land and removed all the idols his fathers made. He also removed Mekah, his mother, from being queen mother because she had made an abominable, abominable image for Asherah. And this is a cool little cut back to uh, something that Jesus talks about, which is to hate your father and mother um, compared to your love for the Lord. And that's exactly what Asa is doing here. He didn't even hear Jesus say this. He just felt and he knew that that, will, that is what was right, that the commands of the Lord are greater than even that of your most close family members. Um, and so he removes her. He doesn't kill her, but he removes her from being queen mother, which is a big position back then. Um, she had a lot of authority in that position um, because she was kind of part of the problem as far as uh, leading the kingship into idolatry. So he cut down her image and burned it at the brook Kidron. But the high places were not taken away. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was wholly true to the Lord all his days. And he brought into the house of the Lord the sacred gifts of his father and his own sacred gifts, silver and gold and vessels. And there was war between Asa and Basha, king of Israel, all their days. Basha, king of Israel, went up against Judah and built Ramah, that he might permit no one to go out or come, come into Asa, king of Judah. Ramah was a settlement that was very close to the northern tip of Judah, if I've got the geography correct. Um, so Basha, who's now king of Israel, is sort of trying to prevent anybody from getting into Asa because Asa is somebody he, sort of, he feared because he was so... Um, he was different from a lot of the other kings in that he was competent, but also he was a good king and somebody who actually stood as a threat to uh, his kingship in Israel. Um, where are we? Then Asa took all the silver and the gold that were left in the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and gave them into the hands of his servants. And King Asa sent them to Ben-Hadad, the son of Tabrimon, the son of Hezion, king of Syria, who lived in Damascus, saying, Let there be a covenant between me and you, as there was between my father and your father. Behold, I am sending to you a present of silver and gold. Go, break your covenant with Basha, the king of Israel, that he may withdraw from me. And Ben-Hadad listened to King Asa and sent, his commanders, sent the commanders of his armies against the cities of Israel and conquered Ejon, Dan, Abel, Beth, Mekah, and all Chinneroth, and all the land of Naphtali. And when Basha heard of, this, heard of it, he stopped building Ramah, and he lived 
in Tirzah. Then King Asa made a proclamation to all Judah. None was exempt. And they carried away the stones of Ramah and its timber, which, with which Basha had been building. And with them, King Asa built Geba of Benjamin and Mizpah. Now the rest of all the acts of Asa, all his might, and all that he did, and the cities that he built, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? But in his old age, he was deceased on his feet. Which I really like that turn of phrase, because it basically means he was constantly doing stuff, and then eventually he died. Um, but he was always, always working for the kingdom. Um, and Asa slept with his fathers, and was buried with his fathers, in the, king, in the city of David his father, and Jehoshaphat... His son reigned in his place. So when you see Asa, now you know why he was named that, because there was actually a pretty sweet king with that same name. Um, so he's got a lot to live up to, and you better remind him of that. Um, Asa, if you're listening, get working. Just kidding. Asa's great. Um, Nadab reigns in Israel. Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, began to reign over Israel in the second year of Asa, king of Judah. And there's this kind of cool way that they keep track of time in the kings of Israel at this time is by saying at what year in Asa's rule uh, certain kings came into place. Because there's like three different kings enter and leave all while Asa is still king of Judah. So Israel's having a terrible time even keeping just one person as their king. Um, whereas Judah has Asa for until he dies. Um, until he dies just from doing so much. Um, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in his sin, which, made, which he made Israel to sin. Basha, the son of Ahijah, of the house of Issachar, conspired against him. And Basha struck him down at Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines, for Nadab and all Israel were laying siege to Gibbethon. So Basha killed him in the third year of Asa, king of Judah, and reigned in his place. So this is how Basha came to power. He killed the king before him. And as soon as he was king, he killed all the house of Jeroboam. He left to the house of Jeroboam not one that breathed until he had destroyed it, according to the word of the Lord that he had spoken by his servant Ahijah the Shilonite. Um, and this is another important thing to point out. It says, Basha the son of Ahijah, in verse 27. But down here... Talking about the prophet, it says Ahijah the Shilonite. So I'm, I take that to mean these are two different Ahijahs. Otherwise, why would you not point out that it was his own son? Uh, so I don't think it was his son. I think there are two Ahijahs. Uh, verse 30. And it was for the sins of Jeroboam that he sinned and that he made Israel to sin, and because of the anger to which he provoked the Lord, the God of Israel. Now the rest of the acts of Nadab and all that he did, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the king of Israel? And there was war between Asa and Basha, king of Israel, all their days. In the third year of Asa, king of Judah, Basha, the son of Ahijah, began to reign over all Israel at Tirzah, and he reigned twenty-four years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and walked in the way of Jeroboam, and in his sin, which he made Israel to sin. And in the word, and the word of the Lord came to Jehu, the son, Jehu, that's just funny. Um, that's like that noise that Matt makes all the time. Jehu! Yahoo. Yeah, I feel like I've heard you say that before. Uh, the son of Hanani against Basha, saying, Since I exalted you out of the dust and made you leader over my people Israel, you have walked in the way of Jeroboam and have made my people Israel to sin, provoking me to anger with their sins. Behold, I will utterly sweep away Basha and his house, and I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. 
So if you remember the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he is going to uh, just as swiftly and violently remove that from him. Um, so not a good, not a good prophecy for him. Anyone belonging to Basha who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. Any one of his who dies in the field, the birds of the heaven shall eat. Now the rest of the acts of Basha and what he did and in his might, are they not written in the books of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And Basha slept with his fathers and was buried at Tirzah, and Elah, his son, reigned in his place. Moreover, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Yehu, the son of Hanani, against Basha and his house, both because of all the evil that he did in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger with the work of his hands, and being like the house of Jeroboam, and also because he destroyed it. And now Elah. In the twenty-sixth year of Asa, king of Judah, Elah, the son of Basha, began to reign over Israel and Tirzah, and he reigned two years, which I don't know if anyone's ever reigned for that brief a period of time. Um, but his servant Zimri, commander of half his chariots, conspired against him. So already he's king, but he's not that powerful of a king. He doesn't even have influence over the people closest to him because they're already conspiring against him. When he was at Tirzah, drinking himself drunk in the house of Arza, who was in the household on T- in Tirzah, Zimri came in and struck him down and killed him in the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, and reigned in his place. So now Zimri takes over, not because of any qualifications, but just because he was the guy savvy enough to kill the king. And when he began to reign, as soon as he had seated himself on his throne, he struck down all the house of Basha. He did not leave him a single male of his relatives or his friends. Thus Zimri destroyed all the house of Basha, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke against Basha by Yehu the prophet, for all the sins of Basha and the sins of Elah his son, which they sinned and which they made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord God of Israel to anger with their idols. Now the rest of the acts of Elah and all that he did, are they not written in this book? Uh, Verse 15. In the twenty-seventh year of Asa, king of Judah, Zimri reigned seven days in Tirzah, now the troops were encamped against Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines. And the troops who were encamped heard it said, Zimri has conspired and he has killed the king. Therefore all Israel made Omri, the commander of the army, king over Israel that day in the camp. So Omri went up from Gibbethon, and all Israel went with him, and they besieged Tirzah. And when Zimri saw that his, the city was taken, he went into the citadel of the king's house and burned the king's house over him with fire and died. Because of his sins that he committed doing evil in the sight of the Lord, walking in the way of Jeroboam, and for his sin which he committed, making Israel to sin. Now the rest of the acts of Zimri, they're recorded in this book. Uh, Verse 21. Then the people of Israel were divided in two parts. Half of the people followed Tibni, the son of Ginnath, to make him king, and half followed Omri. But the people who followed Omri overcame the people who followed Tibni, the son of Ginnath. So Tibni died, and Omri became king. In the thirty-first year of Asa, king of Judah, Omri began to reign over Israel and reigned for twelve years. Six years he reigned in Tirzah. He bought the hill of Samaria from Shemer for two talents of silver, and he fortified the hill and called the name of the city that he built Samaria after the name of Shemer, the owner of the hill. Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did more evil than all who were before him, which is a pretty big statement more evil than all the evil that had been committed before, which was already more evil than the evil committed before that. Uh, And when we get into Ahab, we see this sentence again, and that's just a big, big red flag. Um, 
For he walked in all the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in the sins that he made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger by their idols. Now the rest of the acts of Omri that he did, they're recorded in this book. And Omri slept with his fathers and was buried in Samaria, and Ahab his son reigned in this place. Now Ahab is terrible, and he actually gets a little bit more um, time in this book, and a lot of what he does is going to go into next week. So this is just an introduction into him and into uh, how bad of a dude he was. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, so this is getting near the end of Asa's rule, Ahab the son of Omri began to reign over Israel, and Ahab the son of Omri reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. And Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. So even more than his father, who was even more than, uh, I forget the last person that they said who was more evil. For a while they, they were just kind of plateaued at the evil level. They said you know, just as much evil as before, but now it's getting even worse. The evil level is spiking. Um, if you're looking at it, I, I, in my head I pictured a chart, an evil chart. Um, so you may do that as well. Uh, so even more evil, terrible. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Bad news. In his days, Heel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram his firstborn and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which was spoken by Joshua the son of Nun. Um, and this part right here talking about how uh, at the cost of his youngest son, at the cost of his firstborn. Um, it's not totally clear what it means by that, but there's a good indication that since he's worshiping Baal, that when he was building these places, he actually sacrificed his own children to this god Baal, um, which is really, really bad. Ahab is a terrible, terrible person. Um, and so this whole... Thing. I don't know, we've seen the king of Israel change over I don't know how many times in this last section. Just in, what is it, five chapters? Uh, we've even seen the king of Judah switch over a few times, although luckily we ended with Asa, who was actually a good king. Um, and I think it's good to end right here, That first of all, because we're out of time, but also because um, it's just, it really gives the feeling that, um, I don't know, I get the sense from reading this that, like, man, the the role of a king is just so broken, and Israel is just going through such a terrible time that, um, I don't know, it, it, my first thought was, aren't we glad that we don't have kings anymore, without realizing that actually the role of the king has not actually gone away. We just, uh, we have a new king, and the role of the king has been redeemed by the Lord. The people originally wanted it. He prophesied, no, I'm going to give you a better king. Uh, Jesus. Jay got it. Um, and, uh, and there's this line that, I think I read it in one of the books I was reading uh, to help me prepare for this, but it was, as the king goes, so the people go. And you totally see that here um, 
when Israel is under the rule of someone out of the house of David, but honestly, even when Judah was being ruled by uh, Rehoboam, the people totally followed suit. And it mentions over and over again that Israel sinned as a result of the sins of the king. And uh, so while that's very evident that a bad king leads to bad practices from the people, um, it should also be a reminder that if, as Christians, Jesus truly is our king, then uh, the way that we follow him needs to be just the same. So if unrighteousness and evil of a king leads the people to unrighteousness and evil, then Jesus' perfect righteousness and holiness is what in turn inspires us. Um, so, basically this whole section um, of just bad kings, kings getting more and more evil, is, I think it's really cool in how it kind of gives us this yearning feeling for like, man, like Israel just needs a king that's not going to screw up. And they don't necessarily see it in this span of time, but the cool thing about the Bible is we, we eventually do get to see that um, and it's sections like this that show us just how desperate the people were for a good king, and not just a good king, but a king that's going to redeem the entire, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, the entire office of being a king over people, and, uh, and Jesus does that perfectly. Um, and it just serves as a reminder also to continue trusting in God, because Asa trusts in God, and he has one of the longest rules they've had in years, and he was a good king. Um, as you can see, the Bible reflects on him very fondly, and when people don't trust in God, they trust in other people, or they figure, I'm just going to make idols, because that seems a lot more convenient for us, then things get really terrible. Um, so just thinking about that, with whatever idols may be present, or whatever things you look to, where you should be looking to God either for comfort or for whatever it is, um, that the world is too attractive to our flesh to try and get there, to try and get through things without looking to God. So I think it serves as a big reminder also to keep looking towards the Lord and uh, to put your trust in the King that He has given us, who is Jesus. Um, so I'm going to pray and then we will be finished. Thanks for sticking with me. I um, guess it would have been awkward if one of you got up and left, because then it would just be me and someone else. Um, so thanks for not making that moment happen. Um, dear Father, thank you so much for, uh, for your word, and not just your word, but the things that you intend to show us through your word. Um, you show us that we have selfishly and uh, idolatrously asked for a king, and even through all of that, that was something part of your plan. So though we made that decision, you still had it in your plan to redeem that decision from us and give us a king who would never fail us and give us a king who would never abuse his power or uh, lead us to worship another god. You gave us yourself and you established Jesus as our king. Um, and just the way that your plan works out is so perfect and is so necessary. Um, and I thank you for giving us a king that we completely did not deserve. Um, and that's just a testament to your goodness and to your grace and kindness. And I thank you for that truth. I hope that that is impactful to us and that we continue to see your grace and mercy, not just 
in the expanse of time, though there as well, but in our everyday lives and see how we can apply this to the situations that we face now where maybe we look to a, a different type of king as opposed to looking to you. Um, so I pray that this sits heavy on us and continues to have us think and uh, weighs over all the decisions that we make, that we have a king who is great and who is perfect. And it's in your name I pray. Amen.